Welcome to the Voices of District 303 podcast alongside our superintendent, Dr. Paul Gordon. I'm Scott Harvey, Chief Communications Officer, and today we'll be providing an overview of the district's finances. I'll turn it now over to Dr. Gordon to share more on this topic and introduce our guest. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Today I'm really excited to have our Chief Operating Officer, Justin Attaway, with us today to talk to us really about Finance 101 in District 303. Justin, welcome. Uh, We're excited to have you here. Justin, talk to us first and foremost about what is a Chief Operating Officer um, and your responsibilities and what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, thanks, Paul. So Chief Operating Officer is kind of a new position to District 303. Um, I oversee the uh, financial portions of the district as well as facilities, transportation, and food service. So a lot of the operating functions of the district. On a day-to-day basis, my, my day is split pretty, pretty well evenly among those, those four areas depending on, on the day. So it's an interesting position because you're right. Each day is so unique, uh, working with your business department, working with your facilities, uh, transportation. We're going to lean heavily, especially in at the beginning of our conversation, in the finances of D303. I think it's an area that is really misunderstood uh, because school district financing is different than a personal, you know, your home finances or even business finance. Justin, talk to us a little bit about that. What's so unique about school district finance? Well, so every year when we're approving the budget, we talk about this large document called the budget. Uh, But really, that budget is made up of eight smaller budgets called funds. And that really is what separates school district finance from corporate finance or what you would see in your household is that we use a system called fund accounting, which is very different um, from an accounting perspective. So each of those eight smaller budgets has its own revenue, expenses, fund balance, and they all serve a very specific purpose for the school district. Um, there are two different kinds of funds. There are operating funds, which are the ones that we use for the day-to-day functions of running the district, um, instructing students, feeding them, transporting them, and then there are restricted funds that serve uh, very specific purposes and are much less flexible than the other funds that we have. So capital projects, liability insurance, social security payments, when we look at the larger budget as a whole, we actually focus very specifically on eight small budgets. The budget that we tend to lean into the most is the education fund. Correct. So talk in general, what does that entail? Yeah, so the education fund uh, is the largest fund that we have in our budget. It's the greatest variety and the largest volumes of transactions um, because the purpose of the school district is education. It's educating students, Mm -hmm. so that's going to be the largest fund. That one is used for instructional programs, the daily operations of schools, the general functions of the district. So most of the salaries and benefits for the districts uh, are recorded to the education fund. You'll also see food service, technology, um, special education expenses, any private tuition that we have for students that are outplaced. Those are all recorded in the education fund. So Justin, talk to us about, because school districts, again, are very different than businesses. How do we generate revenue? How do school districts generate revenue to pay for employees and all the other things that you'll be talking about later? Yeah, so we'll start at a high level and kind of work our way work our way down. So every school district in the United States has some mixture of local, state, and federal revenue. 
What makes this discussion a little bit more complex as we start to compare is that the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution made education a function of the states. And that includes figuring out how to properly fund education. So every state does it a little bit differently. So it's tough to compare Illinois to our surrounding states because Illinois is very different in the way we fund public education. So Illinois does rely more heavily on local revenue um, from property taxes to fund as opposed to state revenue. So if we're looking at um, the U.S. as a whole on average, and I'm going to round these percentages just for the sake of conversation, across the U.S. on average, school districts are funded 45% through local revenue and about 48% through state, and then the remainder is made up through federal. In Illinois, there's 54% local across the state on average. So 45% in the U.S., 54% in Illinois. State revenue in the U.S. was 48%. On average in Illinois, it's 40%. Hmm. So Illinois as a whole relies more heavily on local revenue to fund public education. But it's a little more complicated than that even just within Illinois because there is a huge disparity in funding sources just within the state. So districts in the more rural areas of central and southern Illinois that have a lot more farmland and are much less densely populated, have less commercial commercial properties, rely more heavily on state funding. When you move up into northern Illinois, where we are more densely populated and we have a lot of commercial properties up here, we rely more heavily on local funding. So going back to the percentages that I referenced for Illinois as a whole, we were talking about 54% on average in Illinois for local revenue. District 303 is 91% for local revenue. If we look at state, it's 40% state revenue on average across the state. It's 7% here in District 303. So that's one of the big reasons why when we're looking at the budget, when we're looking at financial projections, we key in so heavily on local revenue because in Northern Illinois, in District 303 especially, we rely so heavily on local revenue. And that is such a driver of our budget, of our revenue, and what we're able to do on the expense side of the budget in educating students. Justin, that is fascinating. Now, does D303, do we make that decision? Does the state come to us and say, okay, District 303, you can have more state revenue or less, or you can just go out to your taxpayers and more? How does that work? How is that determined that we, in District 303, similar to to other Kane County and DuPage County school districts, why is there such a discrepancy between where we're at and, like you said, central uh, or or southern Illinois? It's honestly just a product of our geographic location um, and our community makeup. So because in southern and central Illinois there's so much farmland, there's much less property value um, to generate property taxes. So in our district, we have a very high percentage of commercial properties and a decently high percentage of uh, residential properties, very little farmland, very little industrial. And because of that, we've got a larger tax base that will contribute to our local property taxes. It's really truly just the nature of our location and the, the makeup of our community. So it's not our choice. It is not. The state pretty much dictates this, <clears throat> correct? Based off of the the ability for each school district to generate the the necessary revenue, correct? Talk to about school taxes, and generally speaking, especially in our area, you know, when somebody receives their tax bill, school districts are at the top 
of the list if you think about the percentage of your overall tax bill. Talk to us a little bit about that in conjunction with what you just spoke about. Well, let's start with one of the biggest misconceptions about the levy process, and that's that the school district sets a tax rate. The school district doesn't actually set a tax rate. Levies, especially from any taxing body, are made in whole dollars for each fund of our budget. So we look at our current and projected expenses and determine the dollar amount that we need to make that budget sustainable. That dollar amount is then submitted to the county for inclusion in their overall property tax levy, and the tax rate is actually calculated at the county. And it's part of a calculation that takes into account how much we have asked for dollar-wise, and then the property value that we're asking that from, and that it's a simple calculation that results in a tax rate. One of the things that we need to point out is that also does not mean that the school district can infinitely increase its tax revenue. We can't ask for some astronomically large number year over year. There is a statute in place called the uh, Property Tax Extension Limitation Law, or PTEL, that caps our increase each year to CPI or 5%, whichever is lower. It happens that the last two years we've had CPI above 5%, so we've been at that 5% cap. Mm -hmm. But in most years uh, leading up to this, CPI or consumer price index has been less than 5%. So we've been able to increase our property tax levy by significantly less than that 5% cap. One of the important notes is that PTEL doesn't cap individual property assessments and it doesn't cap tax bills. It, it just caps the revenue increase that the school district can receive year over year. One of the most commonly asked questions that I receive too is if the increase is capped at CPI, why does the school district approve a levy with a much higher increase. And that's really because several factors that influence our final tax calculation are typically finalized after the time of the levy. So we have an estimate for assessed valuation in the community. We have an estimate for new property, but none of that is finalized until after we have to submit our levy. So we ask for more than we know we will receive because we need to hedge against all those variations in the factors. We need to make sure that we're accounting for any changes that might be made at the county level between the time that we submit the levy and the time that the property tax bills are actually sent out to the community. One of the other questions that I typically receive is why can't the school district reduce or freeze its levy for a year? And the short answer is we can, but it has significant consequences. Each year, Statutorily, the levy is calculated on an increase from the previous year's tax extension. So if we reduce or freeze our levy for a year, that reduces what we can ask for the next year and then into perpetuity. So mm -hmm. a reduction of the levy for a single year has potential negative revenue implications forever. Um, I do want to note that the tax levy is a complex topic. And we will be discussing that more at the Business Services Committee meeting on October 30th. So I would encourage any listeners that are interested to watch that meeting uh, to gain a little bit more information. I appreciate you going a little bit inside uh, of a district's finances and really kind of pulling apart that whole tax conversation because it is complex. It's hard to understand. It's very different than, like I said, there's a, a personal finances or a business finance. It's how we create our revenue. At the end of the day, when you think about our budget overall, where does the largest percentage of our budget go to? The largest percentage is the education fund. It's for educating students. Um, that's Fund 10. Um, if you ever hear at board meetings, mm -hmm. us refer to funds by their numbers. Fund 10 is the education fund. It's by far the largest that we have. 
this year specifically, we had to start looking at a lot of the transactions in the education fund, and we had to do a little bit more planning than we have in years past. Last year's budget included a deficit of almost $1.8 million in the ed fund. And this is where school finance is actually very similar to mm-hmm. personal finance. Um, our expenses were outpacing our revenues, and it's very similar to a household budget. We need to balance our income to our expenses. Otherwise, we need to pull from savings to make ends meet. And as most of our listeners know in their own households, you can only pull from savings for so long before you're in trouble. So we really needed to take a hard look at our education fund and make some changes because we needed to stabilize that. Absolutely. And it's a hard decision because, as you said earlier, the vast majority of our budget is dedicated staff. That's uh, their salary and benefits, and that's where the, the vast majority goes. So when you're, you're talking about a deficit in Fund 10, that means we had to make some really tough decisions last spring uh, about some of our, our personnel and what we needed to do. So, uh, again, I just really appreciate uh, your insight. And then, and again, I want to make it clear that the board is very clear with you and I that they did not want deficit spending to occur going forward. So we had to make that decision and that really transpired in some harder conversations around some of our elementary uh, specials um, and some class sizes at our secondary that we had to make uh, a decision about so we can meet the board's mandate and do exactly what you said. Most of our households, we do run a balanced budget. We should be doing the same here. Um, So I really appreciate all your work and other district staff members for making sure that we have a a, a balanced budget going forward. We're speaking with our Chief Operating Officer, Justin Attaway. Part of our funding has to do with our facilities. We've got a lot of conversations ongoing about facilities in District 303. 2.1 million square feet of facilities to be exact. 11 elementary schools, two middle schools, a preschool facility, the Haines Center, Peck Road facilities for our transportation and maintenance crew and IT, and our district administration office. So as far as assets that the district owns, our facilities are our largest assets. How are we managing our facilities from an upkeep standpoint? Well, I think the biggest part of that is we've got an amazing facilities team here that honestly works tirelessly to give our students great learning environments. That That is number one for us. We also have a new executive director that oversees our facilities, Amanda Stuber, and she has been an absolutely wonderful addition to that team. So. From day one, Amanda's charge has been to review the current conditions of our facilities and determine the needs across the school district. Um, her initial review resulted in about $213 million in capital projects that need to be done at some point. And none of these are glamorous items. They're roofs, mechanical systems, lighting, parking lots, things that are behind the walls that no one sees, but we need... We need to keep them up in order to focus on keeping our students safe, warm, and dry. Um, She then took that list and worked with our architect to identify the highest priority items. And in August, she presented the five-year capital improvement plan to the board with approximately $50 million in high-priority items. The starting point of that is just having a little bit more on an annual basis, right, for some of that upkeep, and then hopefully getting into some of these bigger projects. And There's a lot of that going on already. I mean, we've been talking at a district level about making some really substantial changes, not only to our facilities, 
longer-term objectives for the safety and security. Just talk a little more about what would go into uh, supporting us on a more annual basis and then long-term. Yeah, that $50 million, when when Amanda brought that plan to me, she and I had to have some hard conversations about how we were actually going to pay for all of that. And it, it was difficult because it, you would like to think that we could pare that down to what we can we can withstand in-house. And unfortunately, when you're talking about $50 million, that's not possible. And all of these really truly are high priority items for the district. So we needed to split out the funding plan between what we can allocate in our annual operating budget. But then we also had to look outside of that. And those are some of the conversations that we've been having at the board level so far, because we are going to be issuing long-term debt. We'll be issuing twenty-five up to $25 million in long-term debt, likely less than that, depending on interest rates. But that's going to fund a large portion of what we're doing here. Another piece of it is we need to increase our annual allocation in the budget. And so for the longest time, we've been allocating about $3 million a year to our capital projects every summer. That is very low for a district our size. And we actually surveyed several of the districts around us to get an idea of where other districts were. And most of them that were our size were about double of what we put in. So our goal over the next couple of years is to increase our annual allocation up to $6 million. But that's going to have some impacts then to the budget. Um, we'll need to find that money somewhere. So, But we are planning on putting more money in for all of this. Justin, thank you for that. So let's do a slight shift around our boundaries, but still kind of leaning into what you were just speaking about as well. So as I think most people in our district realize that, the district's in the process of boundary <clears throat> adjustments. We've consistently said, each and every one of our schools will have some level of impact. We don't know what that percentage is, but each of our schools will have some type of boundary adjustment to that. We really need to move uh, a lot of our students to the east as we've repurposed three buildings. Talk to us a little bit about the repurposing of Lincoln, Haynes, and Fox Ridge of that shift going around and then connect it to that $25 million that the board has approved us going out for. What is that, what is that for? It feels a little <laughs> bit like a carousel of movements. <laughs> um, but the primary purpose of all of these movements is really to utilize our assets to the greatest extent. So early childhood will be moving from Fox Ridge to Haynes. Uh, that allows us to reopen Fox Ridge as a K-5 building, which will uh, grant us more capacity for our K-5 students on the east side of the district. And then our transitions program will be moving from Haynes to Lincoln, along with some district staff, which will be moving to, to Haynes as well. Of the $25 million that we'll be issuing in bonds, about 14 of that will be going towards the construction that's needed um, to actually accommodate all of these moves. It, it's not heavy construction, and actually, there's very little that needs to be done at Fox Ridge, um, because when we transitioned originally from a K-5 building to an EC center, there was very few structural changes that were made to that building. But we do need to renovate some spaces at Haynes um, to accommodate our youngest learners um, and make a proper early childhood center. And then we do need to make some modifications to Lincoln uh, in order for our transition students um, to move there. So about 14 million of of the long-term debt that we will be issuing is allocated toward these changes, and then the remainder will go for uh, the other capital projects that are on our list. So we're issuing $25 million in bonds, 
these are non-referendum bonds Correct. that the district had made the decision to move forward on, uh, meaning we are not asking the public to vote and approve for us to go out and seek these funds to make these facility improvements. Just talk a little bit about that process and what our ability is within those guidelines. So we've got a limit uh, to the amount of long-term debt that we can issue outside of the referendum process. That was set back in the early 90s, um, depending on how much debt a school district was holding at that time. And then the statute came into place saying, essentially, this is the maximum amount that you can hold at any time. Um, so we, we've got a little flexibility there um, with how much we can issue outside of the referendum process. Essentially, from beginning to end, um, our board has given us the authorization through resolution to issue up to a certain amount. So in this case, it's up to $25 million. We are, We're not expecting the full $25 million, but um, the $25 million gives us some flexibility in case interest rates reduce between now and the time of issuance. So through resolution, they've given us authorization to move forward with up to $25 million. Uh, we'll be holding a public hearing to uh, get some community input on that at the November board meeting. And then really from there, we move through more of an internal process where we're having conversations with the credit ratings agencies. They need to rate the bonds uh, for the buyers. And then we'll go to market and we'll have financial institutions that are essentially competing to purchase our bonds. And then uh, we'll have a closing date and we'll actually issue the bonds in July. I just want to point out, we've talked a lot of complex financial information here. And I think it's worth stating there's just a great amount of careful consideration when we're issuing non-referendum bonds or when we're making adjustments to our budget and the recognition of how it impacts um, those taxpayers. So I think it's, again, just worth stating the amount of work that goes into that. Yeah, and and it really is a collaborative process because, yes, we have a business office that is focused solely on on issues like this, but it it goes beyond the business office. It's our entire administrative team, and and, uh, it ends at the board level. You need everyone on board in order to make this work well. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're very lucky here in District 303 that we've got such a good administrative team and that we've got such a good board that works so collaboratively together. So Justin, let's keep going down this road uh, around boundaries and how we got here to, to why we needed to spend some of those dollars. So talk to us a little bit about where we're currently at in the boundary process. What is the board approved? What are those next upcoming dates and times and the work that we're going to be engaging our community in? So our board just approved the guiding principles, which will be used for the development of all of our boundary scenarios. Um, And then they also approved the criteria by which those scenarios will be evaluated as we go through the process. Our demographer now is working on uh, updating our enrollment projections for the next five years. And then the real work of creating boundary scenarios begins at that point. There will be plenty of opportunities for community engagement over the next few months, and then we're anticipating that the board is going to approve the new boundaries by February of next year. So things are happening pretty quickly. They are. Uh, You know, on some of those community engagement dates, it's going to be November 28th at St. Charles North High School. This is where RSP and Associates will be bringing forward different scenarios. We don't know how many scenarios, but they're going to bring those scenarios forward to our community, and that's our staff our parents and the general community at large coming out to um, hear from RSP 
uh, and to be able to give their feedback in, in different types of survey opportunities. And then again, on November 29th, over at St. Charles East High School, we'll be having the same type of conversation. In addition, uh, RSP will be sending out a survey to our community. So even if you can't make either one of those evenings, an opportunity to provide your feedback to the Board of Education. And you're right, Justin, uh, this all culminates on February 12th, where the board will take action. And from there, administration will then get busy uh, making sure that this is all ready for the start uh, of the 24-25 school year, because that's when the boundaries will go into effect uh, next school year. So yeah, the timeline again, November 28th at North, 29th at East, the survey is open from the 28th of November through December 10th, and then the board decision on the final boundary scenario on February 12th, and of course uh, the implementation for the 24-25 school year. You know, we mentioned a moment ago, Justin, just the collaboration that happens within the district and our departments and amongst the board in making sure we're thinking and, and going about budget process in a very thoughtful way. I think the same can be said for the boundary process, right? Even two years ago, when there were conversations to discuss what are our challenges from a facility standpoint, fast forward to summer of this year, when we ultimately decide we need to repurpose some buildings uh, to support equitable learning opportunities and ease some overcrowding concerns. And now with the ultimate boundary uh, decision to bring everything kind of in line, I think Paul and Justin just give you an opportunity to say or just talk a little bit more about the process itself and how we have been very intentional and thoughtful in the impacts uh, that it will have and really hoping to just get as much information out there and feedback throughout that process. Yeah, we've been talking about the, the kind of the boundary process, but it really started in the space utilization from last year where partnering with our learning teaching team, our business services team, and others, our principals across the board, really to be thoughtful about what are the needs of our, our buildings from a facility standpoint, from the space utilization. That was a lot of work last year, and the board approving that work, uh, moving into that, making that final decision is, we have been overcrowded, especially at our elementary schools. We have a number of students who are cap and send, where they may live in a boundary and they potentially could even see the elementary school, but because our elementary schools are so overcrowded, we have to do what we call cap and send, is like, we're gonna move you to this other school. We'll provide transportation, but you're not gonna be in your neighborhood school. And that's really what we're trying to stop in our district and hopefully with the plans that we have going forward, we're gonna reduce and hopefully eliminate cap and send from our district. Can't promise that, but that's our goal going forward. But incredible amount of work that has been put into it. And as Justin and you said, it, it is a collaboration between administration, schools, and the Board of Education to make this work uh, effectively, thoughtfully, bringing all the different voices to the table to ensure we're, we're hearing those different perspectives. We have a number of emails and public comment that our community come out and make sure that they, they are, they're making us aware of certain situations that, that's impacting them. So yeah, I think it's a very collaborative approach that we've done that again will culminate on February 12th with a decision and then the implementation of that. 
So again, finances for District 303, the boundary process, all of which you can get access to and follow along through our board meetings, our across-the-board newsletter summaries, and we have a comprehensive website uh, to discuss the boundary process where people can follow the timeline and see the different decisions and discussions that have happened and the various resources associated uh, with those decisions. Uh, So I want to encourage people to stay engaged by visiting our website, district.d303.org, and accessing our boundary page and any of our across-the-board newsletters. I want to thank again our Chief Operating Officer, Justin Attaway, for talking to us today, and Dr. Paul Gordon. I'm Scott Harvey. Thanks for being with us for the Voices of District 303 podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.